This path will lead you to an unholy place, a cemetery. Hello everybody, Foggy Jack here, the lost boy, oddball of magic, and the host of the Foggy Jack 13 podcast. I'll meet you down in the pumpkin patch where the haunters meet the haunted. Creepercast, episode 96, Four Weeks of Halloween, part two. Today we'll be talking about Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, and Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. We'll also have some news, some TV, and Captain Creeper's book corner. All that and more on this episode of The Creepercast. Hi, this is Rhiannon Freider. I'm the author of the As the World Dies trilogy, and you are listening to The Creepercast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the CreeperCast. I'm Jason and with me always is Jeff and Mike. No uh, snarky quips to send to them. I just want to thank you guys for joining me today. So sit back, sit back, relax, enjoy, get yourself a cup of coffee. I just cannot do that NPR stuff. I was just beginning, <laughs> I was getting worried. I was like, that's actually scarier than you actually having insults. <laughs> I really was. I wanted to try doing the NPR uh, intro, and I just can't do it. <laughs> so coming up uh, on this episode, we are talking about Halloween 4 and Halloween 5. Uh, these take place... Uh, well, Halloween 4 takes place seven years after Halloween 2 was made, and Halloween 5 takes place a year later. Uh, but because of the storyline of uh, Halloween since Halloween 2 took place the same night of halloween one in 1978 they're saying it's 10 years later my basically uh what i what i can say about this is you know take everything that happened in halloween two. michael myers went into a coma at, at the end of that somehow sam loomis didn't even though he's the one that didn't have the superpowers <laughs> superpowers yeah and yeah, and then uh, Michael Myers decides to wake back up. Here's the trailer. Ten years ago, on the night of October 31st, a small Midwestern town fell victim to an escaped killer. Under the cover of darkness, he carried out the most horrifying mass murder on record. Sixteen people in cold blood. Ever since that night, no one has forgotten his name. And Halloween has never been the same. Now, Michael Myers has come home. He has returned for one more night of unholy terror. here to kill that little girl and anybody who gets in his way. Oh, God. Who's going to be next? Ah! Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Maybe nobody knows how to stop it. I love that music. There is nothing better than that music. So, uh, yes, uh, Halloween 4. Uh, basically, uh, this came out uh, in 1988. Uh, it's, with the exception of uh, Mustafa, who is the uh, executive producer of uh, the first two, it's a completely different everything. Uh, including Mike, Michael's mask. Did you notice that? They almost went with the, uh, we're just going to grab it off the rack at the uh, Halloween shop kind of mask. Honestly, that's kind of what I was, I mean, it, it it looks like instead of the the, um, the mask that they use for, I'm assuming the first two movies, it, it was kind of like with this movie, um, 
because we all know the story. It's a William Shatner mask painted white and eye help, holes cut bigger, whatever. This was like they were grabbing the mask that they made of the mask or something, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's basically what you would see every kid on Trick or Treat. And they did, and they actually played off of that. Right. Uh, in the movie, uh, the, the fact that Michael Myers' mask has now become a, uh, a Halloween commodity. Yes, a commodity. A commodity. Well, I mean, it's become a it's become a Halloween icon, and uh, especially for trick or treaters, and that's what they were kind of playing off of when they had you know the scene with all the guys popping up in Michael Myers' mask. Now, my problem with that is, you know, you get the impression from you know the new sheriff and whatever that they you know they don't talk about Halloween, they don't talk about what happened because it was such a tragic event. And yet somebody's profiting off it by selling these masks. Yeah. <laughs> really only, you know, if you think about it, there was only a few people who actually saw him with the mask on that didn't die. That That's very true. Uh, in the first uh, two Halloweens, uh, besides Sam Loomis and uh, maybe the people that came and picked Michael Myers up after, you know, he burned. And that's really it. I mean, uh, Lori. Right, Lori Loomis, and that's it. Because even the guys that picked him up, you know, after the explosion, there's no way that mask survived that that inferno. No, no. So you know, here we like I said. First of all, we're exploiting this, you know, the worst mass murder, serial killing, you know, according to the trailer in history. Um, and we're doing, and you know, we're we're profiting off it. With a mask that no one should even know exists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it, that that was it. Now, uh, the other uh, thing that I uh, I don't know if I like or didn't like, but uh, it, in the first one it, this happened, and then now in this one, why are they always transporting people on rainy nights? <laughs> it's the same thing for, you know, like when we were discussing Silver Bullet, you know, a while back, you know, in any of these movies, if you know it's a werewolf or you know someone's killing on the full moon, why the hell are you going outside on the full moon? But it's like, I don't know. I guess I never, you know, actually worked at uh, an insane asylum. But I'm going to assume that it's not common practice to move the people in the middle of the night. Yeah, that not just the rainy night, but in the middle of the night. Right. Or the fact that they had Michael Myers when he was hooked up. He was, like, in the basement. Yeah, what's, <laughs> what is this, Hannibal Lecter's, you know, cage? I mean, the guy's been in a coma for 10 years. Right. So, yeah, that was it. And then uh, then there was, um, let's talk about Dr. Loomis real quick. Okay. I liked how he, you know, survived that blazing inferno with just <laughs> a couple of patches of scar tissue. Oh, and he's got a limp. Which came and went. <laughs> yes, it did. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Donald Pleasance. I love him as Dr. Loomis. But it was like, by this point in the series, I think he's phoning it in, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and uh, so then you, you have him that somehow survives. But then uh, after everything that happened, the way that the rest of the community talks about him, they talk about him like he's a quack. Exactly. I'm <laughs> like... So what, talk a, talk about a complete change from Rob Zombie's Halloween Two, which takes place, you know, some kind of a genius. Yeah, yeah, where he becomes this genius and sells books and everything. Sam Loomis in the original becomes this, you know, this quack that everyone uh, doesn't, nobody wants to associate with. Yeah, I mean the 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 guy who is um, in charge of wherever Michael was at, um, you know, flat out said, you know, hopefully once his transfer takes place. You know, Loomis will just quit, disappear, or die. Disappear, or yeah, I knew it was something pretty, pretty strongly worded, and it's yeah, retire, and, disappear, or die. And here's the other thing: why are they sending him back to Smith's Grove? He's been in a coma for ten years. It took this long to to process the paperwork. Uh, and, you know, and they're it, sending him back to the same sanitarium that he escaped from ten years ago. The uh, well, you know, it's uh, you know, paperwork and the IRS and the government. And it's slow <laughs> that you know. 
I guess, man. Jeff, you're allowed to jump in at any time. You did watch the movies. Of course, but you know, like I said, like I said the last show, Halloween is actually your your guys' area on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have an, another major problem. I was talking with Jen about uh, this. Well, there's the two problems that I have rewatching these movies. We know where it's going, right? Oh, I think you know, we the lo- psychic connection to his niece, which would Mike. Can you uh, repeat what you just said? You cut out on us. Oh, I was just saying I have uh, I have two problems with this movie. <clears throat> um, one, as the you know viewers who've already seen this movie, we know where it's going. You know the the connection to Sam Hain and the 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 mm-hmm. cult of Thorn and and what have you. Um, but we're left with if you have never seen this movie before, you're left with wondering why the hell he's going to kill his niece now. Right. Well, uh, and uh, then on top of that, I'll go with your second one, and then I'll jump in. The the second point I had to make is doing the math here. Um, Laurie Strode has been dead for a couple of years because we're dealing with little eight year old Jamie. Right. Um, I thought it was so, only nine months that she was with them. That Laurie only died nine months ago. Well, what I'm saying is is Jamie is eight years old. Right. Um, I guess the, the, the point here with the math is that if you, if you take the timeline, the first two movies obviously are the same night. Within a year and a half, Laurie Strode, after suffering what could only be considered the most terrifying night that any woman could go through, is not only in a relationship, but she's having kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm like, I was talking with Jen, you know, my wife about it. Uh, for those of, you know, the CreeperCast listeners who don't know, Jen is my wife, and I often talk about these movies with her. I said, honey, if you had just gone through this, you know, where your best friends had been slaughtered by what amounts to an unstoppable killing machine, you go to the hospital, you know, and he follows you there, kills everybody else. Granted, it was the most understaffed hospital in the history of hospitals. Um, yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you 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 survived this, and they actually kind of went uh, touched on this in Rob Zombie's Halloween too. Um, you know, we flash forward, you know, a year or whatever, and and Lori is in therapy. Now, you would think, even in 1978. It would take a hell of a lot of therapy for her to to get over this night. And yet in a year and a half, she's in a relationship. She's pregnant. And you're like, what? Well, that's just the resilience of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that and there is I mean, there is a that's that's another one of those cases where you kind of have to throw away suspension of disbelief. And you also have to take into consideration that they're not going to spend a lot of time explaining that part of the story to you. But in reality, there is such a thing as, you know, I mean, that, you know, PTSD, the bounce back syndrome. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah. easy just... to make up in your own mind the idea that she hooked up with somebody at the asylum. and <laughs> Or or just uh, hooked up with the next guy because, you know, she realized yeah, life therapy. is short and, you know. <laughs> and he may be dead in the next 12 hours. Right. Right. <laughs> or she might, or she might die in a car crash two years later. Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, according to this, uh, Jamie has been with the Tates for nine months, and if I hope I'm remembering correctly, but I'm pretty sure it's only been nine months. So we're assuming that Lori died nine months previous because she had no other family. Does that sound correct? It sounds about right. Okay. I, I wasn't sure on that. Sounds the, doable. The, the t- okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let, doing some other fuzzy math. In Halloween <laughs> H2O, she is the uh, head of a uh, uh, of a school. Her son is turning 17, turned 17 that year. And she said that in there that, you know, he was her only child, which, okay, maybe she's lying to him. But if she only died, and so uh, this little girl is, what, eight years old? Yeah. He was born... He would have been born when she was five years old, so that meant that he would have had three years with her with his sister. Okay, see. Okay, we're, first of all, we're jumping ahead. You know, two I, I, I I realize yeah, that, we're but jumping I jumping ahead two weeks in our conversations. But I realize <laughs> that, but I just want to point that out right now. 
because you know the all and all I'm going to say about this and I'll um well I won't be here for that show because I will be in Michigan but I will have notes typed up um that you guys can put on the website and share or what have you um is the fact that I felt with H2O that they basically had just you know, kind of like with Highlander 3, they ignored everything that came beforehand. <laughs> yes, that's basically what it was. <laughs> basically, yeah, with that, they said, okay, this happened in 1978, this is 1998. And nothing else happened in between. Right, exactly. All right. Uh, um, now, there, was, there was a couple other quick things that I wanted to point out, um, but... You go ahead, because I think I feel, I feel like I've been monopolizing this whole thing. Oh, feel free. You know, we don't. You tend well, not to I talk say is, All I want to say is, is, am I the only one who, at the beginning of the movie, thought that I was watching Terminator? <laughs> <laughs> because of the hand drop and stuff. Oh, because of you know taking out the mechanic dude and and taking his clothes and. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you which, gotta. Which but you gotta Rob get Michael. Zombie also did, in, which Rob Zombie also used in his version of Halloween too. Right. So yeah, let's. Uh, I, I, I want to explore that because in Halloween two and Rob Zombie's version, uh, he talked about the psychic connection between Laurie and Michael and stuff. And now we have the psychic connection between Jamie and Michael, mm-hmm. to where Jamie is having dreams about him, even though she's never met him. Uh, you know, uh, you're seeing, and you, we're going to get more into this in Halloween five, where they actually are able to communicate with each other from distances away. And again, I guess I just felt in with four, you know, it was like almost it was um, uh, like a pre-connection because she, you know, in in five and we'll we'll I'm sure we'll talk about it more when we get to that movie. Um, it would, like you said, it was it was a literal connection that could actually you know she could see what Michael was doing. Right. Um, in fact, she imitated it. Whereas in four, it was you know she dreamt about him. So it was like kind of a burgeoning, you know, maybe it's because he, you know, had been in a coma and he, you know, um, you know, conveniently wakes up. And of course, they conveniently talk about, you know, the, the surviving niece in front of him, you know, um, which, you know, spurs him to, you know, wake up and, and go after her. Um, it, it felt like the connection was just starting in this movie um, and almost like it wasn't you don't get the full effect of the, of the psychic connection until the following movie. Right, right, exactly. Um, real quick, uh, a- any other things before we, uh, you know, give away the ending to the film? Well, um, I had a couple things, and I noticed it's, since we're w- watching these movies, you know, pretty much back-to-back at this point, um, and I was actually going to say something last week when we talked about, you know, uh, one and two, but it really kind of made me think about it, especially in this movie. Um, I never really understood the purpose of Michael's posing his victims. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the one note that I kind of, uh, made really kind of stuck with me is, you know, after he escapes, um, from the, the, uh, ambulance and he gets to the mechanic or the garage or whatever. I mean, he kills the guy, right? takes his coveralls and that should have been it yet when loomis finds him he's wrapped up in chains um when we flash back to excuse me um halloween one you know he poses the one friend uh beneath judith meyer's headstone right and the one girl's in the closet and i'm like you know it seems like he put a lot of thought or maybe no thought into it. I don't know. It's just, I, I never understood the point behind it. You know, I always, just, I always just put that. Well, first of all, the posing of, um, uh, uh, God, why can't I think of her name underneath, uh, Judith's headstone, um, PJ souls character. What the hell is her name? <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. But, uh, anyway, uh, putting that underneath, uh, the headstone to me, it's him paying homage to his sister. You know, he's seeing her as his sister, Judith Myers, uh, and then putting stuff, uh, pe- putting people into, you know, wrapping them up in chains, throwing them in there, putting them into closets, putting them, uh, underneath hay, all that stuff. Uh, that, that's just him, you know, kind of as a way of, in my opinion, hiding the bodies. He doesn't want them to be right out in the open, with the exception of Judith. Well, uh, you know, uh, Linda, Linda, yes, Linda. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. 
uh, you know, putting her out in the open. So, I mean, that, that, that to me is why is the reasoning behind why he does the, what he does as far as, uh, uh, displaying the bodies. We don't really know from Halloween one, what happened to, uh, Linda's boyfriend that he stabbed. Is he still hanging on the wall? I thought we saw him when, um, uh, when she discovered the rest of the bodies, you know, he, he was not where she, or where Michael had killed him. I, if I remember right. Okay. I must um, have glossed over that then. But that was, you know, one of the, it, you know, right from the start, you know, he's posing these bodies or putting them. Um, and I guess to me, it, it, um, considering he's just out to kill his sister or, or in this case, his niece, you know, especially like with getting back to the mechanic, um, you know, there was there was no point in it because he'd already killed everybody else there. Um, and so the only person who's going to. Well, yeah, really, the only person who sees it is Loomis. You know, it's so there's really a signal. I don't know. Well, but yeah, I, I guess that you could see it, for, uh, take it that particular way. But, you know, he's got to know that Loomis isn't, you know. One, he's got to—he can't honestly believe that Loomis is really scared of him because Loomis is the only one who, you know, other than his his family, he's got any sort of connection to. And honestly, I mean, I guess you got to go with the whole suspension of disbelief again. Michael had no way of knowing that Loomis was going to show up there. Right. Um, and then the only other thing I want to say about this uh, movie, uh, as uh, was. Again, Loomis or Donald Pleasant's kind of phoning it in at times. I think he's a great uh, actor, and I think the character's great. But I think by this time, he can stop telling people that Michael is pure evil. I think <laughs> we got it. I think we got it by now. Right. All right. Uh, yes, and uh, at the end, real quick, I want to talk about this is one of the few times that I think I've ever seen like an angry mob yeah, take out uh, <laughs> one of the villains the job, yeah. in, in in any horror it film totally, outside of uh, yeah, it uh, turned Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah, it turned Frankenstein there. <laughs> but outside of that, this is the first time or the only time that I can think of an angry mob being the ones that save the day. Well, yeah, after they kill one of their own. Well, yeah, but still, <laughs> there's a message there, people. And evidently, in Haddonfield, Illinois, they have a lot of hillbillies and uh paramilitary people that like to <laughs> ride on the back of trucks with big guns <laughs> yes, and, it was and that's strange. it i i do want to say though uh that the reason that we have halloween four uh is because halloween three season of the witch tanked it was awful well, it didn't work the way they intended it right and, i don't think it was awful at all um, really i, mean, I, it I thought it was horrible I, I, in, you know, my prop, my biggest problem over the years is the fact that they call it Halloween three and it had nothing to do with Michael Myers or, or whatever. Um, it wasn't a great film, um, but it was by no means, uh, any worse than some of the other stuff you guys have forced me to watch over the last few months. Oh, <laughs> and, and again, like we mentioned last time that, um, the, the intention was to end the Michael Myers saga and just start right. a whole new group, uh, you like you an know, anthology type. Right, Think every movie it. was supposed to be some sort of right. Halloween horror theme, but no longer dealt with Michael. And the but problem with that is, is because we had two movies that dealt entirely with Michael, we all expected to see Michael again. Right. right. Uh, now, Halloween 4, though, uh, after uh, Mustafa Akid, who's the one that uh, was uh, the executive producer of all of the Halloween franchise, he, after Halloween 3, uh, he realized that... Everybody, when he went to screenings, walking out of the film, kept asking, where's Michael? Because that was a big draw to Halloween. And the fact that they named Halloween 3, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, people were expecting Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, you say Friday the 13th, you can't say Friday the 13th and not have Jason Voorhees. Well, they did. They had a whole freaking TV yeah, show. TV well, <laughs> yeah, but still. Uh, and... Anyway, so uh, that's when uh, he decided to revamp or Michael Myers and bring him into Halloween 4. And uh, they actually asked uh, John Carpenter. He was approached uh, for the film. Uh, and 
he turned it down. Uh, they asked Deborah Hill uh, to uh, write and produce a film, uh, which she turned it down. Um, now, Carpenter did team up with uh, Dennis, I'm going to butcher this name, Etchison, Etchison <laughs> who used the pseudonym Jack Martin. And had uh, and so they, you know, kind of helped co-write Halloween Four, but overall, this is one of the few times. And well, just just really quickly, the reason why he teamed up with Dennis Etchison is because Etchison was had written the novelizations of Halloween One and Two. Okay, and so that's why Carpenter had teamed up with him. Okay, and so you you did have a little bit of uh, the Carpenter flair as far as the writing in this. Uh, some of the. Uh, 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 what's weird though, being that it's from Carpenter, is I don't know if it was the acting or necessarily the writing itself, but man, there were so many one-liners that will drive you nuts in this film. Uh, and then, uh, so that that that's where we got to here. Um, now, Daniel Harris, yes, plays a little girl in this. She also plays in uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. Oh, yes. Where you see her boobs. Yeah, boobs. <laughs> and it's so weird watching last week Rob Zombie's Halloween and then seeing this little girl. And I don't know why. I was the only one that kind of looked at the little girl and went, I'm going to see your boobies again. <laughs> yeah, I felt like, uh, you know, felt like my namesake, Captain Creeper, watching it. Because <laughs> knowing that, you know, in a, you know, you flash forward, you know, 20 years or whatever, and I'm, you know, picturing her naked. And so I'm just like, maybe I should see someone about this. <laughs> yes. So overall, I, I, as far as all the Halloweens go, I love Halloween 4. I think uh, as far as my favorite Halloweens, you know, uh, behind one, above two is Halloween 4. I didn't hate this movie. Um, I felt it was, and I actually wrote it down. It just, it felt like it really moved slow um, compared to, I don't know, I guess two and even Rob Zombie's remakes. I just, well, I, compared to Rob Zombie's remake, Rob Zombie's remakes are, uh, you know, yeah. like on speed. Right. But I, I don't, maybe that's because, you know, I'm watching this after we had watched the remakes or whatever, but I just felt like it was a really slow movie, uh, moving movie. Um, and you know, you were mentioning the fact that, you know, no one really, except for, uh, Mustafa was involved. Did they change the music? Did, you know, they did change Jeff. Did they change the tempo of the music? Cause it does have a little different. Did. Yeah. They actually had a, they had a new composer come in and he, uh, he tried to stick with basic, with the same basic, uh, um, let's see. I'm looking Alan Howarth. That's Howarth. Something like that. Anyway. He he had assisted John with Halloween two and three with the music for Halloween two and three, and um, so when they went ahead and did the when they did this version or this film, um, the director or well Dwight H Little who directed Halloween two I believe, or maybe it's Halloween five I'm getting all confused now. But anyway, he <laughs> did. It was it's all the the difference was is that he added his own little synthesizer twist. Plus, he also included new tracks. Okay, that's it, what it is. So it's more layered. Yeah. Okay, because I knew there was difference to it, and I couldn't tell if it was like a faster tempo or what it was. But now that you mention it, I I do recognize that there was more layers to it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I, and I couldn't have described it either. I just know that it wasn't the you know the simplistic music that we had from um, the, the the first the first one at least. Yeah, I, the first Halloween yeah. was basically plucked on a piano. Yeah. Well, it was a keyboard, but yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. <laughs> Piano, keyboard, there's, you know, white things with black things. And you push them with your fingers. I think my biggest problem with, with Halloween 4 is that they were really trying to get super cerebral with it. I mean, that's, I think, was the was its biggest downfall. Because like, like many of your complaints have a lot to do with the fact that they were expecting people to think a lot harder than we really are used to doing when we see Michael do stuff. <laughs> well, you know what? They take that back uh, in Halloween 5. Actually, more in Halloween 6 and 5. So, <laughs> so uh, but I think with that, uh, now is a good time.
Wow, I had that up way too loud. <laughs> uh, to head Mr. over to Captain Creeper's Book Corner. All right. Welcome to this week's Captain Creeper's Book Corner. This week we are discussing uh, the 21st Century Dead, a zombie anthology. Um, it's edited uh, by Christopher Golden. Um, he is an incredibly prolific author. Um Ironically, though, he doesn't have a story in the book. He just edited it. Um, it's 352 pages long, and it uh, was published uh, July 17th of this year, 2012. Uh, the basic plot of this uh, particular anthology is um, uh, Stoker, award-winning editor of uh, the New Dead series, returns with the 21st Century Dead, an all-new lineup of, um, me, of authors from all corners of the fiction world. Shining a dark light in our fascination with tales of death and resurrection, with zombies. Uh, the stellar stories this volume include a, a tale set in the world of Daniel H. Wilson's Robo Apocalypse, uh, the first published fiction of Sons of Anarchy creator Kurt Sutter, a tale of love, family, and resurrection from the legendary Orson Scott uh, Card. Uh, this new volume also includes stories from other award-winning uh, New York Times best-selling authors such as Simon R. Green, Chelsea Kane, Jonathan Mayberry, uh, and others. Um, so <laughs> I like here, that. And others. <laughs> well, there's uh, well, actually there is a story in here from Amber Benson. Oh, from Buffy. Uh, yes, she. Uh, if you did not know, she is not only an actress, but she's a, a director, a producer, and an author. So. Um, so my likes and dislikes I've been reading these anthologies uh, for years now and th the most recent ones that are supposed to be zombie collections are really kind of hit and miss um, and this one's no exception there are some great stories in here um, and then there's some not so great ones um, some of the good stories are uh, Kurt Sutter again uh, creator of Sons of Anarchy, one of my favorite TV shows. And the title of the story is Tick Boom, A Slice of Love. Um, Daniel Wilson's Parasite, which takes place in the world of his robo-apocalypse, um, as well as Jonathan Mayberry's Jack and Jill, which is set in the same world as his Dead of Night novel. The big problem with these is that many of these stories aren't even about zombies or have zombies in them. And this includes Daniel Wilson's, uh, uh, excuse me, his story, uh, Parasite. And again, it takes place in his robo-apocalypse world. Uh, like I said, they're not zombies, unless you have broadly redefined what it means to be a zombie, even more so than what we've done here on the Creepercast. Um, what's great about these books is it's a chance to read works by authors you may not normally read and uh, may lead you to read more of their stuff. Um, of course, there's no guarantee that this will that you'll like this stuff, uh, but it's better than the alternative of buying a whole book and finding out you don't like it you know, a quarter of the way through and then you're out the money. Um, I also like that in this collection that not all of these stories have happy endings. Yeah, I know we're supposed to root for the good guy, for the heroes to live and survive the zombie apocalypse, but it's a nice change when it doesn't always happen. And did I mention not all of these stories have zombies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this is a decent read. I'm glad I got it from the library, though. I'm giving it a three out of five. It's uh, in paperback and ebooks and audiobooks. And that is this week's Captain Creepers Book Corner. All right. And it, really quickly before we move on, I wanted to throw out there because you were mentioning zombie anthology stories that, um, you know, a suggestion to you as well there, Mike, is look into uh, an anthology called The Living Dead in which you do have a lot of authors you've heard of before. And part of, and I actually just finally started reading it. I bought it a year ago. Um, hmm. It's it's um, eek, I forgot his name. John Joseph Adams edited the anthology. It's basically got a whole bunch of people you've heard of and a whole bunch of others. Obviously, Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, Robert Silverberg, George R.R. R. Martin, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman, Joe Hill, Lauren K. Hamilton, just to name a few. And actually, they do all have to do with zombies in all their very, you know, in their various forms. I mean, you're gonna you have voodoo zombies all the way up to the living dead. I'm actually only on the first story, and I'm already creeped out. It's about a it's about a teacher who's like hold herself up in a school, 
and um, she collects children, you know, the children zombies that are walking by, and basically pulls out all their teeth and and chains them to the floor, and then tries to teach them. That sounds awesome. awesome. It's actually a pretty creepy story. And you said this was called The Living Dead, excuse me, The Living Dead by John Joseph Adams? Yes. Okay, I may have read, um, I think I may have read parts of this because um, it's either this anthology or there's another one called The New Dead, excuse me, again, supposed to be zombie anthologies. And there was a story in there, and I can't remember who it's by, um, and this is the, the same problem that I had with this 21st century dead is the only connection to zombies in this one particular story is this guy keeps thinking about zombies. Oh, and that's it. I mean, there, there's no living dead. There's a, it's just a guy fascinated with the zombie apocalypse. And see what's great about this anthology when you read the beginning of it is that the guy even explains that, you know, he pretty much feels that everybody knows what zombies are by now. So he's not so none of the stories actually spend time trying to explain how they came about or any of that. It's just they they just take you right into a zombie situation. It's a, it's a it seems like a pretty good read so far. Like I said I'm only one story in, but with the the amount of, you know, the credits that are that are involved in the book. <laughs> I've got I'll, I'll have to check it out from the library again and see if that's right. one I... And we'll so do a review. It, yeah, we could do a review <laughs> together. That would be weird. <laughs> so what do we have in horror television, Jason? All right. Well, this week coming up in horror television, I told you last week that I was going to talk about 666 Park Avenue because Jeff refuses to actually do the podcast that he said because he was going to Jeff- do. Because Jeff works constantly. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Slacker. Uh, mind you, I am not doing my um, Revolution podcast because <laughs> that TV show really does kind of suck. I'm not I actually lie. gave up. <laughs> I uh, After about the third episode, I started to, because uh, I missed it when it was on, because it's actually on the same time as Castle, so it automatically loses in the, that particular time slot. You know, and and that's the thing. I'm going to go off on a tangent right now. I really wanted it to be good and great because of the people behind it. But as much as I try, I cannot get into it. It's like, I don't know if it moves too slow or if I just don't care anymore or, you know. That's where I'm at. You know, I started to stream it the other night and, you know, I was just like, you know what? I just don't care. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So as far as as far as apocalyptic movie uh, TV shows go, uh, yes, this is definitely not it. Love's Dragon seems to like it. I've only watched the first episode, and I was happy with the last ten minutes. It had a lot of action. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's about all it is. Is basically people walking around and action, and then people walking around in action. All right, but I mean, this I like, week I like the guy who plays the uncle, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like him, but uh, you know the rest of the. The, the cast or whatever, you know, I'm like, you know what? All we need now is zombies or robots or <laughs> to eat these people because I just don't care if they never die. So about 666. So about 666. Uh, mind you, I want to <laughs> let you know that we do record this podcast on Sundays now. And so we record it before the latest episode actually airs when you hear this. So uh, I'm going to actually go back to the lat- to the first two episodes since the third episode is tonight. And 666 is a really good show. Uh, the plot basically can be summed up like this. A couple, Jane and Henry, from the Midwest, come to New York in the hopes of landing the yuppie American dream. In their pursuit, they land a job managing the historic Drake Building by its wealthy owners, Gavin and Olivia Doran. And that's where the seduction of the Drake begins. We're thrust into this swanky rich lifestyle the building brings and uh, basically all the pitfalls that come along with it thanks mostly to the owner Gavin which who's played by Terry O'Quinn if you want to know Gavin basically just think of uh, Damien all grown up with a shaved head we also discover that the Drake has a very seated past but we don't yet know exactly how bad it really was there's murder cults and devil worshipping that took place in this plaza that we do know in the second episode called Murmurations, Jane makes a terrifying discovery about what lies behind the walls of the Drake as she begins to renovate an apartment. Henry wrestles with whether he should or should not t- 
tip Gavin off to some inside info he has on one of Gavin's big projects. And Gavin, uh, resident and uh, Drake resident uh, Daniel Vincent uh, gets a little help with love, thanks to the devil. That's what I'm gonna I'm gonna start calling him devil rather than Gavin, because that's really what he is. Uh, during the renovation, Jane finds a large flock of birds living in the original air shafts. And according to the exterminator, it's the largest murmuration, which I guess means birds living together. He's no, ever if, if what it means is it's like a, a, a flock of geese or a murder of crows. It's a murmuration of that particular bird. Ah, OK. See, I watch the show and I pay attention. I watch the show, too. <laughs> I have a I have a baby around me, though. That screams a lot. Uh, Jane's told by the Drake resident thief, Nora Clark, not to disturb the birds. They're part of the Drake, she says. As it turns out, the air shaft somehow ends at the mysterious door that we learned about in the pilot episode that was bricked over. Then things get Hitchcockian with the birds. I'll just let you figure that part out. Jane also... Jane is also drawn deeper into the Drake's history, which probably won't end well for her and Henry. Overall, 666 Park Avenue is a fun, suspenseful, albeit very soap opera-like show. The main draw to the show, in my opinion, is Terry O'Quinn and the mysteries of the Drake, but mostly Terry O'Quinn. The rest of the cast, including our main characters, Jane and Henry, played by Rachel Taylor and Dave Annabelle, respectively, don't really seem to have much depth. I don't really care about them, so I'll only be watching it for O'Quinn and the Drake. Okay. Over at the CW, Supernatural Sam and Dean are trying to get the tablet that banishes all demons and closes the gates to hell back with the help of Kevin's mom. We learn that Kevin stashed the tablet in a public locker in Laramie, Wyoming at a bus depot, but it was stolen and then pawned and then bought by some supernatural auction house to be sold alongside Thor's hammer. They're invited to the auction, which was actually a trap for Kevin, and to, uh, it intended on having Kevin memorize the tablet while it was on display. But it was covered, so he couldn't. Uh, then they try to buy it, but they can't because evidently supernatural auctions don't deal with regular currency. So they try to steal it. Which also didn't turn out too well. Crowley ends up uh, turning up and tries to kidnap Kevin by possessing his mother. Dean almost kills her, and then uh, she sells her soul. Yeah. This episode revealed. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's about it. Uh, the episode revealed what happened to Cass. Uh, he was left in purgatory, or he left Dean in purgatory to protect Dean. He didn't actually go back to heaven like uh, we thought. He spent most of the year on the run from the Leviathan while also sporting a pretty cool beard. The highlights of the episode was Sam and Dean going from plan A to plan B and then C and D, maybe E, and Sam taking out some bad guys with Thor's hammer. That was pretty sweet. As of this recording, tonight is season three premiere of The Walking Dead. Yes. So I won't really say anything about it because if you want to know... You can hear our reactions by listening to our Walking Dead Week in Review from your favorite podcasting software, i.e. iTunes, or at our website at creepercast.com slash TWD. And that's what happened this week in Horror TV. Real quickly, I want to mention the uh, 666 Park Avenue. I will be reviewing the book that it's based off sometime in the near future. Really? Uh, I didn't know that it was based off a book. I didn't know it was either until he told me. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I think I Googled it or something. I was looking it up online and I went, oh, there's uh, there's actually several books. Um, we, but uh, uh, yeah, and then uh, don't forget, uh, like I said, right after uh, The Walking Dead airs tonight, me and Jeff, uh, along with a very special guest, and by special she's been on before and uh she's a great fan and a, a great cast member um we are going to be talking about our reactions to the walking dead uh season premiere and that's how we're going to run uh the first half of the season uh which is basically a reactions episode 
And then we'll go a little bit more in depth during their hiatus. Yes. All right, Jeff, are you ready for some news? Sure, I got a little bit of news. In the news this week, well, in release this week, Paranormal Activity 4 comes out this weekend as per when people get to hear this episode. Um, I, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm not real super excited about this one. Neither but, am I. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's directed by Ariel Shulman and Henry Joost, the who also directed Paranormal Activity 3, and it's written by Zach Estrin. Um it's a paramount it's paranormal activity for the plot takes place five years after paranormal activity too so let me see if i can figure this out so we have paranormal activity and then we have the prequel to that which is known as paranormal activity two paranormal activity three i have no idea where it goes but apparently paranormal activity four goes after paranormal activity two is everybody following me very well i have a headache Not a clue. yeah exactly <laughs> anyway so apparently Paranormal Activity 2, which ended with Katie kidnapping Hunter, it follows the life of Alice and her boyfriend Alex, her mother and her brother Wyatt, as Paranormal Activity starts to occur in their home. No, really? And Katie and Hunter, now called Robbie, <laughs> move into the neighborhood. A laptop is one of the techniques in the film, as well as the connect as seen from the trailers. Now, what I think is interesting is that they're pushing this idea that a laptop is one of the techniques because they're using chat windows. Well, if you uh, if you pay attention to the CreeperCast website, you'll see that I actually posted a review about the film VHS, which is an anthology series of found footage films. And in it, one of the stories was actually shot using chat windows, basically like, you know, the, the video chat windows, which I actually like that one. It was probably my favorite out of the five that were in the film. So I'm not feeling as if this is a new technique if they've already done it in VHS. But it's it's I did like the way they used it in VHS, so who knows? Maybe it'll be all right in Paranormal Activity 4 or 2.3 or whatever. Um, like Once again, it comes out this weekend. For anybody that, it, for you people that really love the Paranormal Activity movies, I, from what I understand, the critics are saying you're going to love this one too. I don't happen to be one of those people. Uh, neither am I. <laughs> I actually have not seen any in the series. I saw, <clears throat> I think it was the end of part <laughs> two because Jen watched it. Um, whatever one where they've got the, the pool out back and at the very last scene is the, some girl snaps the dude's neck. Yeah. Uh, whatever one that was, I, I was just like, I'm bored. I don't remember because that's how that's how much I'm starting to care. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a little bit of TV news because this was brought up. You know, Mike brought this up last week, and I wanted to make sure that it got you know brought up again. Is Mockingbird Lane? Yes, that's right. Not only has NBC definitely is it going to happen on NBC, which is the Mon- the Monsters reboot, by the way. Um, they are they are actually airing the pilot on Friday, October twenty sixth. And you can decide for yourself whether it's worth watching. I think Mike actually even brought up the fact that um, that Tim Curry was supposed to be playing Grandpa. Eddie and we've Izzard. got... Oh, yeah, you're right. Eddie Izzard. That's right. Okay. I confuse my British guys sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Izzard, exactly. And then you have Jerry O'Connell coming in as, as Herman. Um, there is a trailer out there for it that um, I will link to the a teaser preview that I will link to the website that I do believe it kind of looks like it's supposed to be a prequel to the original series huh. because of the way they're treating it. Because basically in the in the teaser, Grandpa builds Herman. So it's uh, it kind of looks like... It, it actually kind of looks fun. I'm hoping it's going to be as fun as it looks in the trailer. Um, honestly, I think that's all I have for the news this week. I didn't do a whole lot of work because I had a lot of other news to do. That sounds excellent. All right, so uh, let's head over to Halloween 5. I want to start this off by saying that the success of Halloween 4 that had jump-started the Michael Myers fame in the late 80s, or re-jump-started it again, 
basically gave birth to Halloween 5 right away. As uh, Mustafa Akkad said about Halloween 5, again, drunk off the success of Halloween 4, we began production on Halloween 5. See, I, I, I made that <laughs> up, right? Didn't I? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Here's the trailer. Sounds good. Sheriff? They want you down to the cemetery. Today in the cemetery, somebody dug up a coffin. It was a coffin of a nine-year-old girl. You've come back to us, Michael. When are they going to realize that she is not him, she's just a child? They know that Michael Myers is her uncle and that she attacks her stepmother. That's why they fear her. Especially on Halloween. You're afraid. You're afraid the whole thing might start to happen again. How many people did he kill last year? Have you forgotten? But you never looked into his face, did you? You never saw his eyes. You never saw that nothing, no expression, blank. My memory goes back 12 years. I prayed that he would burn in hell. But in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. Michael Myers is outside. The National Guard will take him to a maximum security facility, where he'll stay till the day he dies. Never die. Okay, so obviously that wasn't an official trailer because the only official trailer I could find on YouTube was German. <laughs> so that was the best one that I could find. Uh, so uh, Halloween 5 actually takes place uh, one year after Halloween 4, after Michael was shot down the uh, mine and blown up. Uh, he didn't actually blow up. He drifted off into a river where he was saved by some weird hobbit living in the woods. I think you mean hermit. Or a hobbit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But yes, a hermit or Kermit. Was it Kermit or hobbit? Anyway. uh, So uh, on Halloween, uh, he gets this weird psychic connection and wakes up after being in a coma. He likes being in comas. He sleeps a lot. He's refreshed for his next killing spree. That's where that's where he gets all his uh, power from. He just sleeps all the time. If we all slept for like a year at a time, we'd wake up with superpowers. I think. Anyway, so uh, he gets up and uh, kills the Hobbit or Kermit, and uh, goes back to Haddonfield to uh, kill and stalk or stalk and kill his sister, of which uh, she is now mute. Did I, I miss anything? Piece. You mean his niece. Or his niece. Uh, the only thing I think you missed is why am I even surprised that he can walk away from this stuff at this point? Um, one thing I have to say as far as uh, plausible uh, ways of surviving stuff, this is probably the best as far as plausibility. You mean even after he takes 800 rounds to the chest... Well, and, and was like... nurses, nursed back to health by a hobbit. <laughs> okay. Um, they have special powers. I, and, and it's I the guess... most like Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the, the thing uh, with this movie is now Loomis um, has... I think he's just gone over the edge at this point. Loomis, it's like Dr. Loomis changes in every single iteration of the Halloween films. And in this one... In some cases, yeah, exactly. And uh, but uh, he's like he comes off at first more soft spoken than he ever was, but then the basically the stuff that he pulls, you just uh, you, you don't get it. I mean, I guess to an extent, I get where he's I guess coming from, as far as you know, he he's tired of dealing with Michael. 
and he knows that Jamie has this psychic connection with him, which is more fully explored in this movie than it was the last. But, you know, so I, I get that he, you know, wants to use her to try and get to Michael or whatever. But, you know, at some point you stop being, you know, the doctor trying to prevent, you know, murders and you become a guy who's bullying a nine-year-old child. Right. That That's exactly it. And that's actually where I think a lot of this movie, uh, you know, the, the theme of this movie is, uh, is, you know, what... Who who's the person that's really the ultimate bad guy? The guy that's going around killing people, but or uh, to get to his niece and basically take her away, or the guy that is basically toying with a nine-year-old girl in the hopes of getting his, I guess, for lack of a better term, white whale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and this is the first time that it's also that he mentioned in, in this in this movie. Again, um, we're getting more previews of this, uh, what we find out in, in the following movie, you know, the, this cult of Thorn, the, the connection to Sam Hain, the, the psychic connection in this movie. Um, we just kind of touch on that, though. Right. Um, but we see the man in black who, right. you know, he's got this symbol. And again, we get more of that in the next film. Um, but in this film for the first time ever um, Loomis actually kind of puts a, a name to what drives Michael, um, you know, in that uh, soliloquy or whatever um, where he's actually speaking to Michael and he, he talks about the rage, yes. the all consuming rage that drives him um, and, you know, putting it in perspective of, if you look at this movie and go back and look at the other three, you're like, okay, I can see that, you know, where he's coming from. And I, I that's one of the things I guess I liked about this is movie is the fact that he kind of, he put a name to it. You know, it's like, it, you know, he's not just killing for the sheer joy of killing or just because it happens to be happenstance. And, you know, it's his niece. He's driven by this on, you know, this all consuming rage. Right, that's it. Uh, you know, and this is one of the first times I don't remember him in this movie using the evil line. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you know that you say. <laughs> you know, you you have the first one. He talks about evil multiple times. Second one talks about it a couple times. Fourth one, uh, it's like every other word out of his mouth. This one, he doesn't <laughs> use it at all. Now that you say that. Uh, you're absolutely maybe he finally you know maybe donald pleasance finally you know did what i did and said okay they got it guys he's mm -hmm. evil we get that we don't need to say it every other line now I, I got a question uh with this one though bullets don't kill michael falling off a, a <clears throat> house doesn't kill michael falling down a mine shaft and being blown up doesn't kill michael uh being beaten the head doesn't kill michael but tranquilizers can weaken him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he gets a you know, like I said, you know, he walks away from eight hundred rounds to the chest, you know, buckshot, point blank, sir, you know, like you said, falls down a mine shaft that gets blown up, and yet he's completely affected by tranquilizer darts, just like you and I. Yeah, well, I think it's. I think it just proves that he totally gets off on pain. That might but, be it. That very well might be it. That, but you give him something like a tranquilizer, and he doesn't know what to do. I Except love taking asleep. tranquilizers. They, they help me through the night. Now, what I think it's what I one of the things that I wanted to tie in with this is that you'll notice that this is also the film though that um, this one almost got an X rating because of violence. Yeah, yeah, it did, and, and not only violence against people but animals. It's one of the yeah. Halloween is one of the few movies that you will actually see Michael and for some reason hates dogs. Oh man, does he hate dogs? <laughs> it's like he kills one in every freaking movie. Well, he killed one in the second one, and he killed one in this one. Well, well and what's interesting about the addition of violence, though, with this film, especially following Halloween, Halloween Four, is that because of Danielle Harris, they had actually cut back on a lot of the violence because um, you know Mustafa was afraid of you know psychologically traumatizing her. Yeah, yeah, that worked involved. out. 
Yeah. Whereas, in it, it, but then later, because they figured there wasn't enough violence, they actually did some pickup shots where they like, you know, like the eye gouging scene and oh yeah, and all that in in four were pickup shots they did later because they didn't feel like they had enough violence. Well, in this one, they just ramped it up. Speaking of four, I want to jump back because I should we should have <laughs> talked about this in the last segment. Remember the first kill of uh, Halloween four? He shoves his freaking thumb through a guy's skull. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I've seen uh, Jason Voorhees do some cr- pretty crazy things, smashing guys' face and you know and stuff like that. But to stick your thumb through somebody's <laughs> frontal lobe, <laughs> I have to say Michael Myers definitely gets the uh, the the cred for being the top slasher. He would kick Jason's ass because he stuck <laughs> his thumb through a skull. After okay. being in a coma for 10 years when all of his muscles should have been completely atrophied. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So if say go- what you want about who's going to win between Michael Myers and Jason, it'll be Michael. He stuck his thumb through a guy's skull. <laughs> <laughs> back to the violence, though, and then back to when uh, – and I'll save the other part that ties into Rob Zombie after we're – after when we get to the end of – our end discussion of the film. But um, that the violence is – Rob Zombie actually modeled – a greater portion of his violence in Halloween two after this film because he wanted to, you know, he wanted to go all out with it. So, um, I do think it's interesting that again, we talked about what, how old was Daniel Harrison for? Uh, in four, I don't know how old the actress was. She was playing a nine year old or an eight year old in four, nine year old in five. Okay, well, it, I, I do think it's funny that a year later they decide to, you know, <laughs> that they decide, oh, well, we're not worried about her getting twisted by the violence. And actually, she became really good <laughs> friends with Don Shanks, who was, play, who was playing Michael in The Shape. In five. He's yeah. not Michael, yeah, he's The, the shape. shape. I'm sorry. Yes, make sure you say that right. <laughs> uh, so I, it, it, that is kind of funny when you consider all the violence, and yet her and, and, um, and Don Shanks actually got to be really close friends. No, no, I, I, I don't doubt that at all because, you know, the thing is, is when they talk about violence on set, violence on screen and violence on set are two completely different things. What looks violent on screen on set almost looks funny. <laughs> and you can ask anybody that works in horror films, and we've yeah. had quite a few people oh, yeah. on that have said that. Billow Burst has actually even said that, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and so, yeah, to say that, you know, you would twist a girl, you know, because of violence on in a movie, I doubt it because to her, you know, it's her, it's a good friend. They're acting, you know, whatever. But, uh, okay. Now let's talk about the prison break at the end. Okay. Because to me, th- this whole film is just a lead up to the prison break, which is a lead up to six. It's like, oh, yeah. it's like five is simply just a vehicle to get to six. And that's the whole way that I saw it. Um, and you have, you know, right at the end after they tranquilized Michael they take him and they put him in jail. <laughs> uh? And uh, we find out we get the that's when we get the man in black and uh, we get, uh, and, you know, the breakout of jail and everything. And Michael kidnaps his niece and uh, they end up disappearing until the next one when she has his baby. We'll talk about that next week or in two we weeks. Yeah. Um, but you uh, might talk about it next week. I don't know. Yeah, you we are going to talk be talking it. about the expert. You're yes. going to be talking to a Halloween expert. So, um, so uh, you know that that was one thing. Uh, you know, when you get to the end and you realize, you know, what happened at the end, that's when you almost feel cheated for the rest of the movie, in my opinion, because it, they put you on this great roller coaster ride, but then you realize, wait a minute, it was all just a vehicle to get to the next movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I feel the same way about this movie as I did. Four, it really kind of moved slow for me. Really, I didn't think five moved slow at all. Uh, maybe it's because I, you know, I've seen the movie so many times that, and I knew what was happening. Um, I just didn't really. It really didn't do much for me, and like, and it's because I know that it, you know, I wanted to see more of you know, the man in black and, and that whole thing. Cause, and even the, you know, you're talking about the jailbreak scene. That must've been the fastest <laughs> jailbreak killing spree in on record. Oh, he just slaughtered and, everyone. I mean, he walks it. Well, yeah, but he, you know, the, the one cop runs in and she gets out of the car almost immediately after. 
And yet, by the time she makes, even though she's walking a little bit slow, by the time she gets to where Michael was, you know, to the cell, not only is everybody dead and not moving, but Michael is gone. You know, he's he's out of the cage, and so is the man in black. And you're just like, man, did he just sprint through there? Yes. <laughs> All right. I think with that, though, we need to wrap this up because we're running out of time. In fact, we're already over time. So, uh, All right. Then I want. Then I'm going to quickly with the. Uh, I mean, this is an ending that we we talked about before with Rob Zombie. That um, a lot of people, at least Donald Pleasance and even Daniel Harris, felt that um, that the movie was going to end with Herbie and the killer. Yeah, yeah. And, and you almost and think that uh, number six Donald was going to start off. Actually, yeah. And and Donald Pleasance had like you know tons of disagreements with with Akkad and Akkad, however you say his name, citing that Jamie should have been portrayed as all evil after stabbing her stepmother, and then so there would have been a chance to say something about all evil, you know, about evil anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and that Danielle Harris herself thought that by the end of it she was going to end up being a killer, so. which Rob Zombie actually did put in his alternate ending for Halloween too. So. It only obviously it was Laurie instead of <laughs> Jamie, right? Jamie, but okay. Uh, well, I think with that, uh, let's uh, get out of here. All right. All right, that was our podcast for Halloween 4 and 5. If you want to get a hold of us, give us a call 503 454 Feedback at creepercast.com. Jeff, what do you got coming up next week? What do I got coming up next week? Well, I don't have a whole lot coming up next week because you and Mike are going to be heading an interview with the expert of all things Halloween who's putting out the Halloween anthology soon, Justin Beam. I am so going to pimp for a free copy of that book, I tell you what. <laughs> I know. And then two weeks, it'll be six it'll be the last and seven the and eight. The last of the Halloween movies. All right. See you guys. See ya. See ya. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Foggy Jack. Please follow us on all our social medias at FoggyJack13. Also, make sure you subscribe to YouTube and to our Patreon. Hope to see you all next time down in the pumpkin patch. Thank you, goodbye, and blessed be.